Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, Our Great High Priest, by Pastor John. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. Well, it's been a doozy of the last few weeks for us. I don't know how many of you know, the more I talk to folks, it seems like everybody knows, but um, three weeks ago, we were getting ready to wind up our hot summer with the vacation that I have waited so patiently for. I've worked very hard this year, and I I knew that there was a vacation on the schedule coming, and... uh, Right before we get ready to leave, Lauren starts having chest pains. I thought, oh, no, this isn't good. And for those of you that know, she had a heart attack back in, uh, uh, what was that, 18, January of 2018 at the age of 45. And um, so, yeah, heart disease runs in her dad's side of the family. You know, we were we were grateful that back in 2018, we were again on our way to leave town. I guess I need to stop leaving town. <laughs> we were on our way to leaving town and she starts feeling bad in the truck and I pull over into the ER and, you know, 45 minutes later, a stent and a blocked artery and she's good as gold. And, uh, but anyways, this time around, it was a little different and uh, I took her to the ER and of course we have a million things going on. So, a couple hours there, and I said, all right, well, you stay here. We'll get the results of the test. I'll be back. And it just escalated and escalated. They did a heart cath, and they wound up putting in three stents and blocked arteries again. And, um, you know, Paola was there with us, and she asked me the first day at the ER, are you okay? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I really believe what I believe. You know, I'm good. I don't get rattled by stuff, but... I got to tell you that that couple days in and having to hold her upright messed me up. Spending four days in the hospital, it messed me up. So our faith that is attributed to us as righteousness that actually produces salvation is not really based on how we feel. And so as we've been studying our series that the Lord's had us on uh, to know him, because as Daniel had so appropriately said that Jesus is the target. He's the author. He's the source. He is actually our salvation. He himself. And so if knowing him and being committed to him and being married to him, being in relationship with him is the actual thing that produces the life of God, which is salvation, the life of the age to come, which is what actually brings the miracles. It's the life of heaven brought into our world here like it was always supposed to be with humanity in the beginning was for God and man to dwell together in his wonderful, beautiful creation. But if that's the case, then really all of our pursuit, all of our energy, all of our attention and affection should really be placed on understanding and knowing this amazing person of Jesus Christ. What does John 17 say? Now, this is eternal life to know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. 
That's what it's all about is knowing him. And so we've been digging into the scriptures to look at the different themes. We looked at the son of David, the, the prophetic word that was promised from the beginning. A Messiah, a Savior, an anointed one, a Christ, a King. That's what all those words mean. Christ and King, anointing, all of it means King. Him with authority, with the authority of God. To rule and reign and exercise God's just and wise and gracious rule in the earth, in His creation. And much of our Christian expression has adopted this idea that the world is evil and going to hell in a handbasket, and we're just waiting, holding our breath for the day when Christ comes and pulls us out of here. But that's actually not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world influencing Christianity closer to paganism and Gnosticism than it is actual biblical Christianity. Problem is we don't read our Bible enough. Or we've been taught and we have our traditions that keep us entrenched in modes of operation that give us the right to kind of hide in the corner and wait for Jesus to come back rather than to actually step into eternal life here and now and allow the life of God, the miraculous producing, kingdom-bearing life of God to impact our world around us, nonetheless uh, our physical lives as well. So, we looked at Son of David, we looked at the Good Shepherd, uh, the last one, um, we looked at the, the Lion of Judah, and today I want to talk about the subject matter of our great high priest. How many of you are familiar with the term that Jesus is the great high priest? How many of you feel comfortable with an understanding of what that means? Hey, that's pretty good. I, I think that it can get a little bit uh, confusing or a little bit muddy, mostly because all of that language that we have in the New Testament primarily comes out of the book of Hebrews. Who loves the book of Hebrews? Well, it was written to Hebrews, and you're not Jewish. Do we have any Jewish people in the room? Hi. I don't know you, but I'm going to get to know you. <laughs> well, it was written specifically to, to Jewish believers uh, in the day of the first century there, and they were suffering terrible persecution and lots of challenges, and mostly the book is written to them in language that they will understand. That, that they would have understood, specifically uh, the religious system that they had been used to, the, the way in which they served and honored and followed Yahweh related primarily to the temple. Their whole entire life related to the temple and the things that went on there at the temple. And we, we read about the early days in the, in the nation of Israel and how they had been delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt and the Lord showed Moses a copy of the things in the heavens, of the tabernacle in the heavens, and said, make this according to the blueprint that I showed you on the mountain. When he went up on Mount Sinai and spent time with God, and he came down with the Ten Commandments, he had actually seen a vision, and the Lord showed him the tabernacle in heaven. So all of what he came down and built, you know, the outer court, uh, the, the, the bronze laver, the, the altar of incense, all of these things. And then the building uh, or the tent, the tabernacle originally was a building. Solomon later built it into a temple. 
but had the first part of the building was a holy place. And the priests were necessary to serve God, to make a place where God could dwell with his people. And it all related around, it all related around the temple so that God could dwell with his people. And in order for that to happen, the, there was priests that served. And you guys probably know this. Forgive me for the history lesson. But the priests would then serve the people as, as like a bridge between God and man. They, they would represent man to God and then also represent God back to man. And they had all of the sacrificial uh, ceremonies that they did where people would bring in uh, animals that they would sacrifice they would give offerings to the Lord. And the high priest, though, as you know, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would actually go have the uh, honor, distinct honor of going into the Holy of Holies. The, the high priest got to go once a year into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people as well as for himself. And he had two animals, one they would sacrifice and the other one they would take the blood of the sacrifice and put it on. And that's where we get the term, the scapegoat. So just a little history there, but it was a high honor to be considered the high priest. So we're going to read a little bit about the book of Hebrews. And really most of the book of Hebrews is dealing with this subject matter of the priest or the high priest and Jesus having now become the high priest where once a year, the high priest would go, but now once forever, by having offered himself as that lamb, he has become our high priest. And now he serves in that heavenly tabernacle. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 4. The writer of Hebrews has just covered the subject matter of the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and intents of the heart, even to pierce to the joint and marrow. That's very temple language for the high priest that would actually take the sacrificial lamb and take the dagger and separate. And we pick up here in verse 14 saying, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Glory to God. Uh, moving into chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes his honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Fun. 
who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers, talking about Jesus again, and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience, or a better word to be submission, by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, a better word for that is completed, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And it was important for them that this subject matter that we're talking about, a confession, I don't think the word confession quite does it. You think confession, you think, um, you know, I'm going into the box, maybe if you're Catholic, and I'm going to tell the priest the things that I've done wrong and then be absolved of my guilt and my shame after I've done some Hail Marys or, uh, you know, the rosary. I'm not Catholic, so I don't completely understand that. But our idea of confession would have to do with maybe, Alan, I'm going to tell Alan I'm struggling. These are the things I'm doing. And Alan would then appropriate uh, the forgiveness of God over me by that application, and that's a real thing. But I don't think that that's what this is. <laughs> the Word actually says that we can forgive each other's sins, that that's a thing that we do. We actually have the power to forgive sins. There's something about confessing. But that's not what this is talking about. Let us hold fast our confession. The, the um, first century Messianic Jewish believers in Jesus, they really struggled because they were being persecuted. Can you imagine what it was like to have believed in the Messiah, to have seen the miracles that he did, to have waited your whole life for Messiah to come. And Messiah came and you absolutely gave him allegiance by declaring out loud, glory to God, Hosanna in the highest. And threw their, their clothes down on the road before him as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. They inaugurated him as the king. Not just the king of Israel, but the king of the universe. They understood the messianic promises throughout the Old Testament that God would send this figure, this person. And they're checking all the boxes. These, the scriptures have said here, he's fulfilling all of these miracles. And as he's doing that, he's actually embodying the word of God. And then to their horror and their surprise, they didn't have a revolution of government. They didn't have an overthrow of the religious system. Everything seemed to remain as it was. Instead, he was accused of wrongdoing, brutally tortured, mocked, scourged, made fun of, completely humiliated, decimated, desecrated, removed from the earth. That will really rattle your cage. And then, hallelujah, he rose from the dead and appeared to many of them. And I think they just absolutely didn't know what to do with that. And the charge to them, as it is to every believer in Christ, is go therefore, all power and authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out devils, do the stuff. I'm releasing you, I've given you the Holy Spirit, I'm not taking it back. 
On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, wham, fell on humanity. The power that he used to actually obey the Father, to allow the will of God, the Word of God, to take root and take place in the earth as he testified of the truth of God's heart, of the Father's heart, all the way to the point of death. He didn't resist, even though he didn't want to. He learned something about what it meant to be a son by having actually obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. And because he trusted in his Father, and he did the Father's will, he expressed loyalty and allegiance to him through his connection and his alignment with him. By the way, was the inaugurating anointing that happened to him was the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. He did not do what he did by taking his deity and put it in his pocket. He emptied himself and became a man. That matters so much. It makes, it makes all the difference to us. It makes all the difference to the, to the Christian lifestyle that as a human surrendered and submitted and empowered with the Holy Spirit, that we can actually have a relationship where we choose the Father's will and His heart for every situation to live His life, His eternal life, out in our day, in our age, in your sphere of influence, in your community, in your industry, in your church. That's what it's all about. Holding fast our confession is allegiance to the gospel of the kingdom. How many of you know that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom? of God's authority and God's reign coming to bear on earth as it is in heaven, that it's actually happening. And you guys have heard me preach enough about the gospel of the kingdom, what that means, but that is the confession. This is why I live. This is why we live. This is what what we live for. We will testify to the truth that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver the promises of God, to release us, to release humanity from the bondages of sickness and death and of sin and the clutches of the devil so that we can actually do the Father's will and see His world put back to rights. It's not about waiting because we're so helpless and insecure, and yet there is great insecurity in our humanity. I can't imagine what it was like to be a first century Jew believing in Christ. It's just such a a radical shift and transformation of the status quo. I can't even imagine being a Jew that didn't believe in Jesus at the time. Yes, God's people. But they made some poor decisions to not actually step in line with what God was doing at the time. And in so doing, they alienated themselves from the life of Christ. And Jesus died for them too. I can't imagine the pressure. I mean, the Roman Empire, they were controlling everything. They were brutal. They were dangerous. The political scene was intense. It affected culture. If, if you started to get out of line, especially claim that that power was not the ultimate power, that Caesar's actually not a god, that Jesus was the son of God, and that his authority actually trumped, and his way of doing things was laying down your life in loving and blessing Boy, they just didn't want anything to do with any of that. It just 
don't make a scene or we're going to squash you. And they did. I mean, they martyred thousands and thousands. I think it was closer to a million early believers. You know, I think about what does that mean for us today? If the book of Hebrews is talking to Jewish people in their language of the first century and actually showing them how Christ has fulfilled the priesthood and fulfilled the ordinances of the temple and all of it now belongs in his body, the church, he himself, that Jesus has fulfilled their mandate. What does it mean? You know, and, and that shrinking back because it would have been so easy to just like, I can't talk about this. I can't do this. I'm just going to go to synagogue. I'm not going to bother anybody. I can just keep it hidden away. But Christianity would have never survived had they not actually testified, no, I saw him raised from the dead. I saw the fulfillment of the word of God. The promises of the resurrection have started in Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what it was like to be alive then and to be in their shoes. Well, what's it like for us today? Because the whole book of Hebrews is about convincing them, don't cast off your confidence, which has great reward. There remains a rest for the people of God. Be careful that you enter into that rest. Jesus is that rest. Joshua didn't give them rest. They thought that entering into the promised land might have been that rest. They still had wars. But the rest that God promised them was God restoring all of creation the way he intended it to be in the first place. And last, a couple weeks ago when I uh, spoke, I ironed that out, laid that out pretty good. If you didn't hear that message, I would go back and see the Lion of Judah. But what does it look like for us today to not waver, to hold fast to our confession? What does it mean for us today to be faithful to the message of the kingdom of God coming, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that everything has changed in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? You know, I, I read in the news the other day that Abbott had um, actually tried to pass a law here in Texas. Did y'all hear about this? Recently, and the federal court closed it down, said it was unconstitutional. The law he wanted to pass was blocking pornography from kids. Yeah, they were trying to pose a law to block pornography from kids. And I'm not a politician or a lawyer, so maybe it's over my head. But I think that's probably a pretty good idea. You know, it was basically you got to be 18 to look at porn or, or get into all that stuff. And they said it's constitutionally unfair. A federal judge said, no, we can't allow that to pass. It's constitutionally unfair to actually interfere in people's sexual preferences. I apologize that this is a little too real. And like 20 years ago, I wouldn't even, I would have fainted at the idea of even mentioning the word sex in church. But now it's everywhere. And it's after kids. And they say it's unconstitutional for us to pass a law to protect kids from perversion. Now we all know because I have laid this out before, but all, any and all perversion or immorality, anything that deviates from the way that God lined out it to work, marriage, man and a woman, is just intermingling with other gods. Pure and simple has always been that way. That's how they get in. 
They love to get into the intimacy thing. And that's how it works. And the perversion, it goes from one thing to the next thing, and it just heightens. And today we've gotten to a place where we can't even protect kids from it. Wait till they're old enough to actually make their decision. What I'm saying is, is intense and ugly and gut-wrenching. Does anybody's stomach feel a little sick at the moment? I apologize for that. It does turn my stomach. But we have to hold fast to our confession that the kingdom of God is coming to bear and that other gods and the influence of other gods that actually lead us into places of bondage and darkness are not okay. And that we carry the Holy Spirit and the power of God to actually overcome and help people get free from that stuff. It's, it's not about trying to condemn. It's about actually rescuing people because all of that stuff is extremely destructive. I mean, the, the level of suicide rate for people that have decided to get uh, gender transitions and all that is off the charts. Imagine giving a 13-year-old who's confused. I mean, does anybody remember being 13? Yes. Do you remember looking in the mirror and going, who is that person? <laughs> Seriously. You do not know who you are or what you're up to when you're 13 years old or even 15. That was not in my notes. It just jumped in there. That is not to, if, if you are struggling with sexual stuff, that is in no way to shame or guilt you or put a weight or a burden on you. There is freedom and there is life in God, but there, God has a better way for you to live a life where you can be free. Because all of that stuff, if you know, if you struggle with any of that, I think everybody has at some point. It's, it, puts, it locks you up. It puts you in bondage. You are not actually walking out the life that God has intended for you to live, the life that is connected to Jesus that is the life of God, the eternal life. That is salvation, is actually stepping into his personhood. I'm so thankful for verse 15. Let's look at that. So even though a lot of this language is primarily directed towards Jews, towards the nation of Israel, because they're the ones that have the priests. You're Gentiles, other than, what's your name, ma'am? Sorry. Anita. Anita. God bless you. God bless you. Other than Anita, we're Gentiles. But Jesus is still our high priest. Verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The high priest has sympathy and compassion because he too is subject to weakness. So speaking of every high priest, that, that, was, that was the point, is having a representative that was a human being that could actually relate to us, but also connect to the holiness of God. What a privilege to be that person. But I'm so thankful that if you keep reading the book of Hebrews, it talks about our, our hope that is anchored in the heavens because Jesus, the forerunner, has gone through the veil. That's another priestly term. But Jesus, our forerunner, has actually gone into 
that place, the Holy of Holies, before the Father to actually serve on our behalf. And that is the tether that holds us in the, the places that we get into. I'm telling you that a couple weeks ago when, when Lauren was in the hospital, I thought I was okay until about day three and I was having to hold her up and I think it was the, the male nurse that said, well, you know, there's nothing we can really do about changing our hereditary, you know, our um, uh, DNA. No, it's not the diet. You know, just this sick feeling came over me that uh, it's, it's hereditary. There's nothing we can do about our DNA, our genes, you know, it's hereditary. Thank you. <laughs> But I, I just felt that, that battle, you know, and I felt that weakness and I felt that being uh, subject to the weakness, the weakness of our flesh. And I felt like I was 15 again. I felt like I was that kid that didn't know who he is. <laughs> I'm a catch the fire pastor. I told Paula the day before, oh, that stuff doesn't bother me. I believe God, you know. And some of us would teach you that that's the confession. If I just say the right stuff, that that'll make all the difference. I'm telling you that saying the right stuff didn't help me in that moment. As a matter of fact, it made me sick to my stomach. I could have quoted Bible. I know the Bible inside out. I could have quoted Bible all day long. And don't get me wrong, I did pray over her. I did speak words of faith over her as we identify that. But as Daniel pointed out, faith is more anchored to the person of Christ. It has actually gone through the veil through the place that used to separate us from the holiness of God, from the place in heaven where everything is as it should be. Whew. Jesus is the anchor. He is my hope. Not my ability to quote scripture, not my ability to tell things they ought to be the way they are. Is he himself. Glory to God. I believe in a positive use of our words. Don't get me wrong. I prefer that to a negative use of our words for sure. But there's got to be more than that in that moment. And, uh, you know, it just kind of ran me over a little bit. And I love that what I've been talking about, the, the pistis, the word for faith in the Greek, it is more about our relationship as we are surrendered and submitted and actually yielded just like Daniel had an oath to God that he would share and testify. <laughs> He's become a bondservant in the house of the Lord. He's actually allowed the Lord to take his ear and nail it to the doorpost and say, I belong to you. That's different than just memorizing scripture and yelling it out loud. I'm not saying that there's not faith involved in that, but faith itself is actually grounded in the person of Jesus Christ and being married to him, being surrendered to him, being loyal and allegiant to him. So I had this sense that the Lord said, son, this is a Psalm 23 season for you this week. You're going to learn what it means to be a son. That's what it says about Jesus. I could stand up here and tell you that the meaning of this object right here has to do with you're so awful and that he was brutally tortured so that 
Your awfulness could be absorbed, but that's not actually the way it works. Absorbed and absolved and swept under the carpet. No, no, no. This object right here was that he was a witness of the kingdom of God, testifying of the goodness of his father. And the world does not like that confession because the truth and the reality of the word of God is that it is coming true that his kingdom is coming and God will. He's a God of righteousness and of justice and he will set everything right. There will come a day and he will use Jesus Christ to do it because he is the faithful and true witness. It was his connection to his father as a son to actually submit to the father's will in loving connection to the creation that the father loves so much that he refused to be tempted or to be swayed from actually doing what the father wanted him to do. Loyalty, allegiance. Fidelity to the Father's will. Now that's something that we, that's what all of the attack and all of the things that come against us that squeeze us and squish us and hurt us, all of it is to get us to slip out the back door. I can't do it, God. Jesus was the only one that did it. The only one that went all the way through. When he said it is finished, he was talking about his mission. His submission to the Father. The worst thing the world could do was to kill him. The powers of this world, the power of Satan, the greatest tool it has is the power of death. I got a couple of quotes here. Jesus was and remains one of us. Y'all realize that? We make a mistake when we think that when he was resurrected and exalted and ascended to God that he, poof, turned back into something he was before. He is forever truly human. It matters in this subject matter of the great high priest. It matters that he is forever a human being. Yet he's in heaven seated at the right hand of God. If this is too radical or real for you, I'm sorry, but this is genuine Christianity. This is what the early believers believed. Jesus is and remains one of us, a truly human being who still remembers what it was like to be weak and to get sick and to be tempted over and over from every angle. Most of our temptation, all of it's grounded in the same thing to get you to stop following the Father, to get you to malign Him in some way, to somehow think that He's out to hurt you. Jesus having become human in the incarnation, didn't stop being human after his death. Jesus remains fully and gloriously human, and it's as a human being that he rules the world. Now that's good news. Now that's good news. He's the king of heaven and earth as a human. <laughs> That's the gospel. Glory to God. So when he represents us before the Father, he's not looking down on us from a great height and being patronizing about those poor creatures down there who can't really do much for themselves. 
He can truly sympathize. He's been here. He knows exactly what it's like. I think it's weird that Hebrews chapter 2 kind of starts with some of this, so we're backing up to chapter 2. Chapter 2, 14. In chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he's talking about us, humanity, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Y'all realize that, right? That's the devil's game. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had been made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In all things, or in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation. Does everybody know what propitiation means? <laughs> it's the act of reconciling, making things right. You know, there's nothing worse than when you've screwed up. You ever screwed up with somebody, like really screwed up, and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to repay this person. I had a guy working for me once that uh, he was a trainee, and I was uh, training him how to work on cars and all that, and he backed a car. We have this huge piece of equipment that we straighten frames on, big iron bench. And uh, you, you drive the car up on there, and then you lift the, the other end of it up, and then you fasten it down, and you can straighten the frame with pulleys and chains and stuff. Anyways, he, he drives the car up and off the other side. Yeah. Yeah, he did that. But the, the horror of having made a mistake like that and not knowing how you're going to make it right, like... You know, he was just a 17, 18-year-old kid. He didn't have any money. He just really screwed up somebody's car. One thing about being in business, uh, being a business person, uh, in the business that I'm in, there's a lot of dangerous equipment and risky stuff. And every employee that I've got has cost me thousands of dollars. <laughs> and unless I was actually willing and got over the fact of, like, allowing people to make mistakes uh, and then helping work them through that, I wouldn't, wouldn't be in business. Because if you expect perfection out of people, it's not going to happen. You'll never get anywhere. You'll never make a relationship with that person either, you know. But there's something about someone else stepping in and making right for you something that you couldn't make right and actually encouraging you and helping you to step into your future by training you and developing you and saying, that's all right. Let's keep moving forward. We're not going to define you by this moment. A little closer to what we're talking about with this idea of reconciliation and propitiation. You see, it's the devil that has the power of this world. He has the power of death that he uses against us. And it's the fear of death, our fear of death, that actually causes us to get into the trap, into the box. Hey, because he says, oh, you can be safe. You can be safe. Just come right over here and we walk right into some form of bondage, and then the heat is off. But then we're less than human at that point because we've subjugated our authority, we've subjugated our dignity to someone else, to the enemy, by allowing him to dictate how our life's going to go rather than being dictated by the will of the Father. Are we getting the understanding now of what's going on here? I could tell you that you're just born awful 
You're just born wicked. And there's nothing that you can do about that and thank God for the cross and that just made up the difference. But that's not actually the Christian gospel. There are Christians using that as the gospel. That's a part of the gospel, but that's not exactly how this works. Closer to what I'm sharing with you, the reconciliation of all things, the renewal. God is a God of renewal and of restoration and of redemption. Y'all get that, right? He didn't give up on planet Earth and go, ah, I'm going to blow it up. He covered in water once and said, I'll never do that again. God is going to make everything right. And he's decided to do that through the person of Jesus Christ. So we talk a lot about sonship. Are you all thankful for that? That we've been adopted? That by the Spirit of God, something inside of us cries out, Abba! Abba Father, that we belong to God. And I think that that is the most wonderful, comforting thing to know that we have someone in heaven who we belong to, that he is our dad, he is our, a, a good father, a good dad. And matter of fact, much of the catch the fire message historically is all about the father's heart. And we love the fact that Jesus came to introduce us to the father, to make us right with the father. But I want to introduce another side of the coin is that this, that is all very true, but true sonship involves embracing the father's world. Both of my sons, they serve this church. They have actually embraced the heart of their father. They serve this church every week. They actually serve in our businesses. And according to Hebrews chapter 5, there's something about the sonship. Let's look back at 5, 5 again through 9. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever. And here the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting Psalms 2-7 and Psalms 1-10. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's that funny word again. Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, it was heard, the father heard him because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned submission by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected or completed is a better word, having actually fulfilled his calling and his mission, having actually fulfilled what God called him to do. Because Jesus wasn't like imperfect or something because he was a sinner. Tricky word there. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So as I've been making this point about Salvation, the eternal life, the gift of God, the life of God, us stepping into it, is actually the relationship with the Father. Jesus, even though he had deity to begin with, emptied himself and surrendered himself to the will of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, through love, enabling him to carry out what the Father had called him to do. And many of us say, oh, well, the Father called him to be butchered, it pleased the Father to bruise him or whatever. We'll quote a weird scripture like that. That's not how this works. That wasn't what the 
father wasn't, it wasn't like the father couldn't see that. But the father had called him to be the king to testify of righteousness and justice. That's what the father called him to do. And the world did that to him. And yet the father had spoken to him the promises that he was the Messiah, the anointed king of the universe, so that not even death itself could stop that kingdom from coming. And he didn't give up. He went all the way through the, endured the whole process. God, the father would be a sadist if it actually made God happy to watch his son bleed and die. I mean, we, we, we sang a song today, you know, that, that the father's heart in agony watching his son die. The deal is that humanity ensnared in, in bondage to sin and death breaks the father's heart. And there's something about him being a son where he came and worked in the father's business, so to speak. Noah up there, you know, he, he works out on the floor as a technician a couple months ago. Noah, I hope you don't mind me sharing this. But it's hot and he's got bloody knuckles. And it's very difficult job as a job that I did for, for 20 something years. And he came to me and was like, Dad, can you get me out of the shop and put me in some elevated position, you know, an office job? It's hot out there. It's like 110 degrees. And just like Jesus, of course, Jesus was a little more intense than that, obviously. With vehement cries to God to spare him from what he went through, he actually learned submission to the Father's will by surrendering to the fact, not my will, Father, but yours be done. I had to tell Noah, son, it's not time yet. You actually have to learn what it's like to actually fix these cars correctly, to please the customers, to work with the other employees, to go through the process. I mean, sure, I could say, oh, let's just slap you in a chair in an office and let you run things from up here, let you arbitrarily tell everybody what to do and strut around and we can go golfing or we could go sit on a beach somewhere, but that would ruin the business. He would not connect to the people. It mattered that Jesus actually became one of us and surrendered and embraced the Father's world. Right? John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. We have an eschatology, an end times view that God hates the world and he's going to blow it up. That's wrong. John 3.16 says that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. His beautiful creation will be restored and renewed and it will be so radically changed that nothing that offends, nothing of unrighteousness will survive the transformation that this planet, that all of creation is going to go through at Christ's return. That's the gospel. Uh, Hebrews is so technical and deep. The order of Melchizedek. I got five minutes. <laughs> I'll make it real short. The order of Melchizedek uh, in Genesis. Yeah, come on up, Matthew. So the thing that's unusual about Melchizedek in Hebrews later in like chapter seven or something, he talks about this amazing person that we don't really understand. He didn't have a father or mother or genealogy or beginning or end of life. It's basically that can't be true, but 
They don't understand much about him. If you all remember in Genesis 14, Melchizedek's the guy that came out with bread and wine after Abraham had actually gone and fought like five kings and took back all the stuff because they had kidnapped Lot. And this king of Salem, which they believe is Jerusalem, priest of God most high, prior to the law, prior to Aaron or the Levitical priesthood, where people had to be chosen. This guy, not a worshiper of Yahweh per se, but of El Elyon, God Most High, same God, but didn't even know him well enough to know his name was Yahweh. So what is it about Melchizedek that Jesus had been chosen to be a priest according to that order? Well, Jesus was from Judah and no priest had ever come from Judah. Maybe sometimes a king could do a little bit of priestly work. But in Israel, especially in the ancient times, there was a balance of power that was necessary so that God had instituted in his nation and in his people for there to be a king, a priest, and a prophet. And between those voices, they would kind of keep the power in check. Because if you make a king a priest, he could just say, well, God told me we're going to storm Iraq and wipe them all out, turn it into a glass bowl. That's not good. Because that person now will be accountable to God for his actions, whether that was actually God or not. Probably not God, since he loves his planet. He's probably not going to go around committing genocide. Jesus is the perfect representative, the only one trustworthy enough to actually have political power like a king and the priestly role and priestly duty. So there you go. Perfect balance of power. That's what the order of Melchizedek, he's the only one trustworthy enough to hold that. And I could get into, you know, some of our politics. <laughs> some of our conservative politics are, may not be as squeaky clean as we think they are. I prefer them, but I'm just saying. There's been a lot of th- things, a lot of wars done in the name of God that were probably not the Father's will at all. All right. So why don't we all stand up? And I I think that I want us to focus now as we wrap up just on this subject matter of the mercy seat. And I know that we've already done some ministry. We've Daniel did such a great job of praying and leading us into the presence. Thank you, Daniel. But maybe another wave and another invitation from the Holy Spirit to just be real and to be honest and say, you know, that my my humanity is a real thing. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, of Him filling me, apart from him moving me into and developing the life of Christ in me. Right? Christ in us, the hope of glory. Holy Spirit's role is to exalt and to magnify Christ, to develop the person of Jesus, to make us ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Am I making sense? But I've got moments when the doctor says, well, it's hereditary, not much we can do about that. Or I feel like I'm 15 years old again. And I am subject to weakness. And the power of the fear of death or of not getting to finish. 
That was a slide that didn't make it. I think the fear of death is not so much the pain of it because we know that, oh, I just cease to exist. Fear of death has more to do with just being done. And I'll wake you up at night. Could be over tomorrow and I didn't finish. Even the fear of someone else's death, like someone you love. I think that all the ways in which that manifests in our life, there is this place, it's the very throne of God, that Jesus, the forerunner, has gone before us so that we can find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. So I just want to offer one more time, if, if you have need like that, if you have, the enemy has made a place for you to get stuck in your life where you're not really moving on in Christ. You're not walking in the destiny. You don't currently have marching orders from the Lord that are tailor-made for you. And it's probably because you're trying to protect and guard. We're subject to that because of the fear of death, the fear of not finishing. If you're frozen up and you have just been stuck, I'm telling you that the mercy and the grace before the throne of God that is available to us pertains absolutely to this life that he's called us into. (laughs) It's really good news. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.